ladies, thadies, and gentle dweebs. I welcome you with a heart so full to the final conversation of Season 1 of the 5QI Podcast. I'm your host, Canon Carlos, also known as Culture Clap on the interwebs, and in this episode, I converse with one Julio Ricardo Barella of LatinoRebels.com. Much has been said over the years of the publication and the man behind it. While it has also spawned its fair share of imitations and variations. Though in this episode, we get to hear from the founder himself, just how LatinoRebels.com came to be. So without any further ado, let us continue with episode 7 of the 5QI podcast. Julio, thank you so very much for joining me here on 5QI. But I got one question to start us off. Just please avail and alleviate my ignorance. Who are you? <laughs> I love it. Who am I? Like, that's such an open question. I love it. So let me get very literal. I am Julio Ricardo Varela. I am a Puerto Rican-born journalist. It's probably what I am right now. But... I am a dad, I am a husband, I am a friend, I am a music nerd, I'm a sports fanatic, I'm a Latin Americanist, I am an editor, I'm a publisher, I'm a commentator, I'm an opinion maker, I'm a troublemaker. Uh, so that's, that's, that's sort of my top line, but let me give you a, like the history, like, uh, give me, let me try, yeah, let me, so let me uh, break it down. So. I was born in Alto Rey, Puerto Rico, um, in the greatest year of the 20th century, <laughs> 1969. So I was born Ooh. a year, bef a month before uh, men landed on the moon. I was born the year of, uh, I guess, 1969. That was a, uh, the Beatles were still kind of relevant and they were kind of still around. I was born in the year the New York Mets won the world championship, which no one thought would ever happen. So, um, I have an amazing mother, Bronx Italian woman, and an incredibly awesome father uh, who is also named Julio, who goes by Julio Fernando, and that's why I go by Julio Ricardo because I'm not a junior. So Ooh. I don't. So one of the things people say, like, "Oh, this is Julio Varela." No, no, Julio Varela is my dad. <laughs> that's what he goes by. I'm Julio Ricardo Varela, and I and I wear it with a lot of pride because yeah. um, I just, to me, like I've always used that name. Even people are like, oh, you're just fit. No, I've used that name since I was like, when I was in high school. I got diploma. I got receipts. You know, when mm -hmm. it, you know, my high school says, and so I've used that forever. Um, so anyway, my parent, I grew up in Puerto Rico in the, in the 70s, which if anyone knows about the 70s in Puerto Rico, it's kind of like uh, the Wonder Years, San Juan edition. So I lived a really cool life with my cousins and my abuelos who we had three houses in Guaynabo all connected um oh. so I grew up at a time where I had all my cousins my one of my best friends of all time is my older cousin Omar uh who's a year older than me he and I just grew up together but then my family my 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 parents split in the mid-70s and I moved to the Bronx with my mom and my little sister 
Right. And so I grew up in the Bronx from like the late seventies until 86, but I would go back to Puerto Rico all the time. Uh, and then my dad also moved, uh, and his family, uh, he remarried, my mom remarried. Um, so my, so my dad, I think I also lived in, uh, Texas. I lived in Sugarland, Texas for two years in the summer, which in the eighties in Houston, which I would not recommend anyone to go back and live that. Um, although those times for me is when I really got into Latin American literature. So it's so funny, like in, in Houston, Texas is the first time I ever read hundred years of solitude in English. And I've read it like 10 times in English and 10 times in Spanish. And it really, that was, you know, when you have that moment of, I want to be a writer, like, when do you want to be a writer? Like that was me in my AP English class, uh, with a summer reading, I was, uh, Let's see, I'm trying to pay. I was 14 years old hmm. and I read 100 Years of Solitude, that excellent translation. That first line just blew me away and it just really hit me in the gut. And I devoured that book. And I remember when you're a kid, you're like 14. I can't read that big book, but I read that book so quickly. I read it again. I think I read it three times that summer, plus other things. And I was reading Dickens, but I was also reading Marquez, Garcia Marquez. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I want to be like the great Latin American novelist. And so I came back to school in the Bronx uh, and I and I really started to pursue sort of that world to the point that I got into, I didn't think I was going to get into, I'll be honest with you. Um, I mean, I graduated really top of my class and I, and I'm not like friggin', I'm sorry. I'm not going to be like humble about it. I'm like, I busted my tail. Yeah. You know, you know, and I studied the Aeneid and I studied world history and I studied Latin American history and I was 16 and I'll never forget my, um, I went to a, a Jesuit prep school in, in New York, Fordham prep, which I, to be honest with you, to this day, I've never been more challenged academically Yeah, and prepared me for life in general to be a great, to be a writer. But my, I'll, I'll never forget my, uh, my high school counselor, God bless him, uh, Father Fitzpatrick super like said hey you know you should apply to ivy league schools and i'm like what <laughs> what are you talking about like i just never thought that that was like a possibility for me and he said no you should and i i'm like you have the grades um you should do it so i really took a you know i i really never thought of that to the point that i kind of did it myself because around that time my mom's second marriage um wasn't going that great mm -hmm. a little bit. So I kind of had to be very into, I, my, my mom didn't really worry about me. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, not that I was like, to, you had to take initiative. Yeah. I wasn't a nerd, but I wasn't like, I, I wasn't going out to in, in the Bronx and like, you know, pounding beers in the park with friends. Yeah. Right. So I, I wasn't doing like forties, but I wasn't like, just staying at home either. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I, I had a really great group of friends from the Bronx and, and from Westchester. What was really funny about like the time is that I would hang out with all the Puerto Rican and like all the Latino and all the, the black students in you know, in the Bronx. And we, we would, we were, we were like, we had a shared love of like hip hop at the time. We were at the time when hip hop was becoming Yo. the, 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 you know, the thing. 
And it was so great because I remember these memories of high school, just like beatboxing with all these guys. But then if people know anything about New York, Westchester is kind of like the more affluent part. And so I, and Fortnum Prep was like in the North Bronx. So you'd have all these like preppies coming (laughs) and I really like them as well. And I kind of was, you know, I was kind of like being exposed to a world that, um, I wouldn't say it appealed to me, but it was one of those, wow, the Bronx is not the center of the universe. This is interesting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, and as much as I love the Bronx and as much as, I mean, the Bronx shaped me in a lot of ways, just as much as Puerto Rico has shaped me. But as I began to apply to schools, um, I went, I applied to like six Ivy League schools and I got into all of them. Oh, and and I and I don't want to bra- you know what I mean is I don't no. want to sit here and be like because like people are like oh you're elite oh you're white Latino oh blah, blah. oh you come from privilege and I'm like bullshit like my you know my mom worked as a nurse and did overtime to get me through private school so I'm not here to you know we were it wasn't like here's the thing I know what poverty is like I remember when my mom I remember when my mom like divorced and mm-hmm. we moved to the Bronx. And we were in a one-room apartment, and she worked, and she was a single mom, and she, you know, there were times she worked her ass off. So, and so what? It, what it was for me was like, I'm gonna do this. I did everything by myself. Mm-hmm. I applied by myself. I was. I still had an. I had the only thing that I had was I had a. Uh, I think my mom got me an electric typewriter for Christmas or for my birthday, and so I did all my applications be a typewriter and I did everything. And in, in, in the spring of 1986, I get this letter from Harvard University, like a big package. My mom called, I remember the day I was in, I was at school and I called the payphone to my mom, like around three o'clock because I had some after school activities. And she's like, there's a big package. There's like a big letter for you from Harvard. And I'm like, open it up. And she did. And it's wow. like, Oh my God, I'm in. And, and, and in the end I was like, I'm going. Like yeah. I, I talked to my dad and I was like, how do we do this? He goes, don't worry about it. Like, just go. It's Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right. So I went and I have to say it shaped me in a lot of ways, both good and bad. I instantly saw what white supremacy is and an elite institution. Like you, you picked it up. You, you, you picked up what privilege and what it is to be elite and what it really, um, it's not as, um, how should we say it, progressive, right? So if you think about Cambridge, Massachusetts, which everyone's like, oh, the Republic of, you know, the People's Republic of Cambridge, it's like Berkeley. It's like, uh-uh. There was a lot of, um, Harvard was very tough to navigate in a lot of ways. It, it, what it was to me, it's like there weren't really support systems for, for, um, for Latino students um, and for Black students and for, you know, it, it it, we were seen as sort of like the ethnic crowd, right? That we yeah. weren't quote unquote. And so the imposter syndrome really hit hard. And especially for like Latinos who were in the United States. And then you're meeting like a Mexican student who goes to Harvard undergrad. And you're like, oh, we have something in common. And it's like, oh yeah, my dad's also like, you know, diplomat to the United States. And you're like, okay. Like you're the, you're like that part of Mexico. And so there was this sort of like, thing at Harvard that kind of looked at diversity and, and tried to lump it, like tried to make it super general. When in fact, like a lot of Chicano students, a lot of Puerto Rican students, um, 
you know, it was really a lot of Chicanos and Puerto Ricans at the time. Yeah. Like, it wasn't even like, I mean, if you met, um, or, and Cuban, like Cuban American, like if you, if you looked at the sort of like the Latinos of Harvard at the time, you were either like Mexican American Chicano from the West or the Southwest. You were Puerto Rican from the East Coast. You were Puerto Rican from Puerto Rico. Um, and you were like Cuban from, from Florida. That mm-hmm. was it. That, yeah. I mean, there was no like Central Americans. There was no like, you know, Salvadoreños from like, from, you know, from, from DC when now it's very, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so, so it was fascinating. And this was like late eighties, early nineties, where you start seeing sort of these tinges of Latino pop culture, right? That we, we were seeing it growing up and then the nineties. So I graduate, I, the best thing I did um, at the time is that I studied history and literature of Latin America and I fell deeply in love with the history of Latin America, with my region, with the places, like I instantly connected. And this dream of me becoming this writer, this Latin American novelist, I did creative writing. I I still am writing a novel that I started when I was 19. I'm 51 now, right? <laughs> that I still haven't finished, but all these things, you know, I, Julio Cortazar, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, uh, Pedro Paramo, you know, Juan Julfo, uh, Carlos Fuentes, Garcia Marquez, uh, uh, Rosario Ferre, who's an amazing, I actually wrote, she's she's amazing post-feminist Puerto Rican novelist, my favorite novelist ever. I wrote my thesis about her, about the, the image of victimhood, the island as a female victim, and how does a post-feminist woman write to destroy that? But you couldn't because Puerto Rico is a colony and, and her writing reflected that. And I just like my thesis advisor who was Puerto Rican was like, oh, my God, this is like so deep thinking. Yep. Um, I got a really good grade from someone. I And then I got a no distinction, which basically means your thesis sucks. <laughs> and what it was is it goes to the issues of representation. The reader, one of the quote unquote readers in history and literature um, d- would came in with the assumption that Puerto Rican literature is not, is not something you should talk about. Hmm. So this ac- that's academic arrogance. I, I, I'll never forget it. I mean, I left Harvard with, I graduated Harvard with a really bad taste in my mouth, even though I graduated cum laude. But the fact that I was told by an academic that my thesis was a no distinction, it, w- it insulted my thesis advisor. And I said, this is bullshit. And when I defended it, I wasn't as, here's the thing, when you're 19, and you're angry. I, I guess I was 20. I was 20, right? So I, I was 20 at the time. Okay. You're angry and you're at Harvard and it's 1990 and you've kind of been on your own, to be honest. With you. I've been yeah. kind of on my own ever since I left because I never went back to the Bronx after the summer, after my freshman year. I went back to the Bronx in the summer and I worked in a supermarket and I was like, I think I've outgrown the Bronx. I'm going to go. I'm just going to Cambridge and I'm living in Cambridge. And I, I'm like, I, I've kind of been away from the Bronx. I was away from the Bronx since I was like 17. Yep. But when I tried to defend my thesis, I was, I couldn't. Like, I, I, I wish, here's one of the things that I always said, I wish I could defend my thesis now and go back to that person and be like, this is why you're wrong. And I'll give you 20 reasons. And you practice white supremacy. You don't even know that you do, but you do. And you're playing a power play and you're telling me that, the literature and the voices of where I come from, of my homeland, don't matter. Like, F off. Like, that's what I should have said. But I took it so politely, and I was told that I wasn't good enough. 
So I, I dealt with this entire imposter syndrome forever. Yeah. Um, in the nineties, I, I stayed up here in Boston. I got into, um, I worked at the Boston globe as a contributor and a reporter for sports in 1989. I wanted to be a journalist and there was no opportunities. I went back to Puerto Rico for a year. Um, it was nice to be home, but mm -hmm. there were no jobs. And I just was like, I'm going to go back to Boston. And I then went into educational publishing and I started developing bilingual materials for young readers, in textbooks. And I was talking about representation back when I was 22, 23. And I was publishing like authors like Rudolfo Anaya, Gary Soto, Carmen Tafoya, uh, Alma Florada. And I, was, and I was seeing a connection between what it is to be a Puerto Rican and what it is to be a Mexican-American or a Chicano on the West Coast. I was starting to see like this issue of representation. And I was deeply proud of the fact that I was one of the first wave of editors who said, kids need to see themselves in the literature. And that was in 1992. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so to fast forward now, right? You know, I went through a lot of career, career changes. I, I, I live up here in Massachusetts. I've been here since, you know, since pretty much since 1991. Um, I, I have a great, great two kids, a great partner. Um, everyone's, you know, here we are in the middle of a global pandemic and everyone's cool. Like, and I was able to then rediscover, you know, with all my career changes and transitions, I fell back to journalism because I, I was a sports editor at, at the college paper. I learned how to become a journalist at my college paper at the Harvard Crimson. And I came back as a journalist, um, probably in around like 2002, like in the middle aughts, like as a side yeah. hobby, because I got, because I was a Harvard graduate, I was one of the first like non-college people to, to be given a Facebook in invitation because anyone that had a Harvard EDU email in like 2004 got a, got a early invitation to Facebook. Ooh. So I was kind of on Facebook, like I was, you know, and I, I kind of saw like, wow, this is really interesting. And then because of Facebook, I naturally grab gravitated to Twitter Yep, and then I started to see like how you can use digital media as a journalist. Thank you so very much for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast and learn about other projects I'm pursuing, I encourage you to become a patron at patreon.com slash cultureclap. Members get first access to applications I'm building, sneak peeks and exclusive leaks of music I'm recording, as well as the satisfaction of helping a brown orphan, helping you to build that better world we all know is possible through communication and unity. Though without any further ado, let us return to the conversation at hand with peace and power, gratitude and humility. Vamanos. And I really started, I started writing like flat, and I, I started like reporting. I started writing about Puerto Rico. I did a blog. I did flash fiction. I met so many Latinos like in like 2009, 2010, 
Um, and I was like, and now I'm like, you know, working at Futuro Media. I worked at Al Jazeera America. I, I got my job through digital media. Yeah. Um, and then and then I interviewed with Mariana Hossa in 2015. And now I'm here five years of Futuro Media. And I'm like, I'm good. So that's that's who I am. I know it's a long answer, but I want no, to. That it. is. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, that's 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 really. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on right now because I think that that really provides an exceptional backdrop. Thank uh, you for for my for my next question, which is which I mean yes, here I am gonna be a little bit more pointed. Um, oh. where along the lines did Latino rebels uh, arise, and, oh, and a, what were the thoughts yeah. and 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 the experiences around the creation of, of Latino uh, this is, uh, so this is where this is where it gets interesting because around uh, middle aughts uh, I was going through career transitions and I went I got into a dark place mm -hmm. I'm telling you like I I've been very vocal about my mental health issues mm -hmm. I I think I, I from when I when I look back at my life and I look at like my parents divorce and things like that, that really impacted, like, you don't realize how much they impact you. Oh, I kind of wow. went through a, a tough phase um, in my early 20s that, I, you know, I was very private about because mm -hmm. it's like I was 23, 24. Why would I be clinically depressed? Right. Mm -hmm. And then I started to be like, but I, I got through that and I, I used to do like improv comedy and um, I started dating my my future wife and I got through it. Right. And, and, I got a great therapist and that was, I was like in 1993, 94. Um, I was really lucky that I was working at a place back then that um, let me take a break and be like, go, go away. Yeah. So I was very like, I didn't realize about like mental, like it was so taboo. Like, mm -hmm. but then I started finding out that like in my family, there was a history. So fast forward to a lot of career transitions, a lot of like industry, contraction um i my career path just went to hell in a lot of ways and there were a lot of good people that helped pick me up and i'm very grateful for um the employers that really gave me a shot and i feel like those five to six years i was trying to figure myself out and it was a combination of dealing with my depression coming to terms with it dealing with growing up and being responsible like as a as a provider as a dad um, knowing that your life's plan is going to be radically could change like that. Like, and so one of the things that I found comfort in as I grew was I began to blog and write and write fiction and join online communities. And so one of the greatest things that saved me, um, I think mm -hmm. mentally was being able to write. And I remember this, I, I formed this, I was, I became part of this flash fiction community that was so supportive. Um, I don't say that enough to them. There was a time, I think in around 2009, 2010, that I just found a love of writing. I found a spark again after yeah. coming out of my dark place. And they were so supportive and they were the nicest people. And I, I've, I wouldn't say I lost touch with them. Like we're Facebook friends. We kind of see each other and I, I support, but there was a time where I was like, this is what you need to do. You're a journalist, you're a writer, you are, uh, you know, the belief you have about representation is part of, is in your soul. Like you were doing, you've been doing this all your life, but maybe this is where you're going to find it. 
So I started blogging and I started writing a lot for myself at julioarvarela.com. It's still around. So if you want to see my early, my early, like back in the day, um, musings um, from 2009, 2010, um, I have a lot of posts there. And I started doing like independent reporting. I started to do, you know, follow my own stories. And I was seeing that people were paying attention. And we're actually like, oh, my God, you're giving me something that I can't find about my community and other outlets. So I got to the point where I didn't want it to be just about myself. Yeah. Because I, I believe that community, if you're going to try to change the issues of representation and underreported stories, and if you're trying to move the needle, you need to think bigger. So I remember in, two, in like early 2011, I was in between jobs and I was watching the daily show with Jon Stewart. And I was like, man, this is exactly what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I like a little humor, a little commentary. It's smart. Like nothing like this exists for a bilingual person like me, for a bicultural person like me. And man, Jon Stewart's a rebel. And I just remember writing rebels. And then I just put Latino in front of it on a piece of paper. True story. And I just put it, put it aside and I guess I put it by my nightstand. I went to sleep and I woke up and I saw Latino Rebels and I'm like, fuck it, I'm doing this. Um, and I bought the URL that day. And it was like early 2011. And we started because I still I still had a good social media presence on, on Twitter and yep. Facebook. Yep. I just created the handles like a week later on yep. Twitter and Facebook. And then I was like, okay. This is interesting. Um, <laughs> what do I do with it? So what I did was I, I had so many good friends that we would always share stories with each other online. People that I met online who mm -hmm. kind of shared the same mission were like, yeah, it is about representation. Yeah, like places like Univision and Telemundo aren't talking to me anymore. Like I don't need my I don't need my content in Spanish. I, I grew up as a bilingual bicultural kid in the United States. Right. I listened to the Smiths and I listened to Los Tigres and Norte. And I, you know, I grew up in a different place. I like I watched, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I love Cheers and I love El Chavo. Right. And it was so natural at the time. Um, I And we can talk a little bit about the challenges later, because I think um, you'll see an evolution of Latino rebels as we go through it. Mm -hmm. But at the time in 2011, I'm like, screw it. We're doing this. I created a private Facebook group. I invited like 40 people and I said, hey. I don't have any money, just being honest with you. But you guys love the vibe. I love the vibe. I'm going to open it up to you. I'm going to create this private place with group. I'm going to invite like 40 of you. People, if people want to, you know, people want to bag out, totally cool. But just help me find stories. And yeah. I will, I will, you know, we will create them. Uh, if you want to help me write them, we'll just do them under a Latino Rebels byline. But I opened it. I let people run the social media account. I let it, I just open sourced the shit out of it, but kept it private. You know what I mean? I didn't yep. make, you know, I just let people be, it's like, if you want to post on Facebook, just don't post every like half hour. Mm -hmm. And we just were experimenting it. It was like, boom. And we saw something on social those first couple of months where it's like, okay, we're doing a web. I'm like, I'm doing a website. I finally, this is, now I know what we're doing. So mm -hmm. latinorebels.com. Pure coincidence. I just launched it on May 5th, 2011. I'm, people are like, oh, it's Cinco de Mayo. I was like, no, I just was like, yo, I, I was like, let's just do it that day. 
And so we did it, and it's nine years later. And what's interesting, if you look at the early origins of Latino Rebels, it's very snarky and it's very, like, assholey. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, there was a lot of people who were like, how dare you? Like, but we were kind of like the kids who were like, it's okay to do this. We're giving you permission. Like, we were kind of like the whole, like, I ain't got, like, you imagine yeah. us in a classroom and it's like, someone's like, you need to do the work. And it's like, someone gives you the piece of paper and you just like roll it up in a ball and be like, I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> like, that doesn't speak to me. And so there was a little bit of an anger. There was part of that anger that I talked to you about mm -hmm. at the beginning where it was like, I was always told that I had to be, be, you know, good and polite. And, you know, there are better people out there. And there was the first time ever we're like, fuck that. No way. Like, we're our voice. We matter. You don't know who we are. We are going to create this lane for ourselves. Get out of the way. Like Michael Jordan, like get out of the way. And, yep. and I have to say, right, at the time, as we started, th there was people who were like, wow, this is exactly what, what needs to happen. And there were people who were like, you guys are a bunch of assholes. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not here to like, like appease you. I don't need to be told, like, go, go create your own freaking site. Go do your own thing. So it was very interesting to see the dynamic of real live support and love. Yeah. But also the opposite of, I don't know whether it's like, um, it's just the human nature of trying to just drag somebody down and whether it's jealousy, whether it's like contempt, whether it's like insecurity. Um, and we got into these massive like Twitter fights with people and people would just be like, you guys are the worst blah, blah, blah. Your core. I was like, your corporate sellouts. And I'm like, corporate sellouts. What the hell are you talking about? The only person who's put money into Latino rebels is me. <laughs> and I'm still paying for the money that I lost. I lost a shitload of money, like in terms of like setting it up and, 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 you know, running it and trying to pitch it. And, you know, and I just kind of gave up on it. I was like, screw that. So we saw an evolution. What happened is that where I was getting to the point at Al Jazeera America and they were like, you need to keep that running because you represent Latino rebels. And I was like, okay. Oh, really? So, yeah. So I was like, that's cool. Um, so they were very like, you should be proud of it. Like, that's the reason why we hired you. And I was yeah. like, okay. I was very grateful for a very small group of people who believed in Latino rebels when I was really burnt out, mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking about Hector Luis Alamo, Marlena Fitzpatrick, Christian Enriquez, Charis Delgadillo, Charlie Vasquez. Um, it's a very short list of people. Um, Omar Cruz. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Oh, Marce Gutierrez. Uh, I'm trying, you know, I always run out. I, I always forget. Oh, Rodrigo, Rodrigo Echevarria. Um, my dad, like, was part of the group. Yeah. You know, like, just people who were just, like, we keep at it. And it was a really weird time because I know we had hit something big, right? I know we we struck a nerve. Mm -hmm. And what happened was around 2014, 2015, we started to get attention, right? We started mm -hmm. to – people were calling us up and being like, hi, we want you to be part of this venture or we want to um, – <laughs> are you selling Latino rebels? So we went through this path as I was at Al Jazeera America where there was interest in rebels. Right. And I really was like, okay, maybe there's something here. So let me explore it. So we went through different paths and in the end, none of them worked because you know why? Because they all had the, the, the worst intentions. 
they all looked at Latino Rebels as a marketing entity, as a brand. And I said, no, 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 no. Latino Rebels is the community, and I can't fuck that up. And I know people will be like, well, you did this or you did this. Yeah, they were all mistakes. Guess what? We make mistakes. <laughs> like, I learn from shit. Like, this is all notion of, like, people who don't know how to do this think this is really easy. It's freaking hard work. And, you know, for every Latino Rebels that's out there, um, there's hundreds. And I'm really glad that you're doing your thing. Keep doing your thing. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Because the reality is everyone's going to make mistakes. And I don't regret, like, I look back and I just say, yeah, that, I fucked that up. Oh, yeah, that, that was a mistake. But I'm not here, like, I'm not profiting off of people. I didn't make one cent off this thing. And, you know, I had blood, sweat, and tears. But the one thing that helped me, it helped me get through my mental health. It became, like, for me, it became the creative outlet I needed. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That, that I, it, it was like having a child and raising that child and, and saying, you know what? I still have work at Al Jazeera America, but I want to do this. And I actually have a really core group of people who believe in it. They know they're not getting paid. Everyone tried. We tried. I mean, I, the people that really were like, we're going to try to make this happen. And it just never felt right. At the yep. same time, right? At the same time, this is all happening. And I'm going to be very blunt about it. We created a, a community that people wanted to imitate and duplicate. Mm. And that happened. And I know for a fact that a lot of these outlets that were creating this new, like, you know, bilingual, you know, unapologetically Latino or whatever, um, they, all, they all looked at the rebels model. They, yeah. all, they were like, wow, what are the, who are these guys? And instead of, and the mistake I think is that, and I've learned, this is after nine years of coming to terms with how powerful Latino Rebels really is. It's bigger than anything. It's bigger than any of us, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very fucking proud of it. And no one, you know what I mean? It's like, don't you ever come down and t- like, just get out of the way because yeah. it, it's its own thing. And, and the proof is in the pudding now and we can talk more about it. But I will say this at the time, probably like 2013, 14, 15, you start seeing all these like similar type pages. Yep. And I mean, I know for a fact, I know for a fact, because all you have to do is go to the URLs. All you have to do is look at like your your dashboard on your website that people would literally go to our page and like read what we did or vibe what we did and then go do the same thing. Copy paste. And I was like, okay. So, and so there was one point, I think there was one tweet, I think about six or seven years ago that we tweeted out or maybe like five years ago where we're like, okay, journalists, okay, Latino digital media people, time to fess up. How many of you read us and then use our, use what we do to kind of create your own stuff? (laughs) (laughs) And people are like, yeah, there's some tea in that. Right. So, but, but here's my thing. I passed at the time I was like. I was dealing with it. My, my initial reaction because I'm human was that I got really angry, right? I got yeah. very possessive and very like, how dare you? And oh my God. And then I got very like, why is no one giving us money? Like I, I, I started going into like this, this trap of this, this human trap of like, well, we're better. 
Like, why can't we do that? And you're know, like, you get into that. You start questioning. It's like, like, and you get angry and you learn from it all, right? Yeah. You learn from it all. Because one of the things that I've learned from it was, you know what? We are, we are originals in a lot of ways and we are, we, we are our voice and there are other voices that do the job and I don't view them as competitors, to be honest with you. I view them as like uplift, like, I just want to uplift the right voices. I don't think everyone does it right. And I'm not, you know what I'm saying? So I, I then began to realize that the only thing I can fix is the things I can control. And that's where, and that's where I just kind of had this um, realization around like 2015, 2016, that Rebels was bigger. And the best thing we can do, excuse me, the best, the best thing we can do is just keep it going. And I'm just so blessed that someone like Hector Luis Alamo at the time, he was like, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to be the deputy editor for you. You don't Mm -hmm. have to pay me. I want to learn this craft. Yeah. And to this day, Hector and I have become really close friends because of it. And Hector to this day says that experience for a year and a half not only showed to me like, wow, what you do, Julio, it, it made me a better publisher. It made me a better editor. And it gave me the confidence to create my own thing. So thank you. And now he has, you know, on Enclave Magazine, he does remember the show. Uh, he's a great guy. I love him to death. And so um, so that's sort of like that. So I don't know if this leads to the next question, but go ahead. Well, Ooh, cliffhanger. Find out the next question on part two of our conversation with Julio Ricardo Barella of latinorebels.com. And for those interested in supporting all of the conversations that we're having here on the 5QI podcast, I feel obliged to encourage you to become patrons at patreon.com slash cultureclap. Though now, let's boot, scoot, and groove our way on over to part two of our conversation with Julio. So we'll see you there, and until then, I do hope you're able to find some peace between the frequencies. Mm -hmm.